Hello, my name is Bide Mialogunde and you're listening to episode 186 of the Bid Picture Podcast. So in part two of this four-part series, I'll be doing a wide range of geopolitical analysis on topics surrounding Russia's ongoing war effort in Ukraine and the marriage of convenience between Russia and Iran, which is a calculated attempt by the Iranian regime to solve its own domestic, social, and economic problems. Thank you for your time. Let's get to it. Chapter 1. This ambiguity may well be by design. So the unexpectedly poor performance of Russia's armed forces in the invasion of Ukraine has raised the possibility that Russia, in desperation, might lower its threshold for using tactical nuclear weapons. So since the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia's tactical nuclear arsenal, so basically weapons whose range is less than 300 miles, has already played an increasingly important role in its defensive plans. President Putin's government has considered the possibility of the limited use of nuclear weapons as part of efforts to inflict unacceptable damage on an opponent. So this is a lower standard than the one used during the Cold War when the Soviets assumed that even tactical nuclear use in Europe would bear catastrophic proportions. So in 2020, Russia published the basic principles of the state policy of the Russian Federation on nuclear deterrence, which basically specified that the country would resort to nuclear weapons in a variety of scenarios. So these scenarios include if Russia or its allies were attacked with weapons of mass destruction, or if it detected a launch of ballistic missiles against its own or its allies' territory, or if its nuclear command and control structures were attacked, or if the state's very existence was threatened by the use of conventional weapons. So the wording of that last clause, which refers to the Russian state, not the nation, not the society, has raised concern since it suggests that a threat to the state's leadership would meet the nuclear response criterion even if Russia itself is not under catastrophic attack. It is also unclear whether Russia's definition of weapons of mass destruction includes large-scale precision strikes and cyber attacks, which Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu has described as approaching WMD levels of destruction. So this ambiguity in Russia's latest policy may well be by design, given that other Russian military documents refer to nuclear weapons as a tool to be used in all phases of conflict. It is still likely that Russia will only use nuclear weapons if its forces face a decisive defeat at the hands of NATO or if its control over what it deems its own territory is jeopardized. But this might include freshly seized territory that has been incorporated into Russia. Mr. Putin made nuclear threats, for example, during the seizure of Crimea to discourage the West from intervening. So the fact that Russia is willing to contemplate nuclear first use is not the most important departure from Soviet practice. 
What is genuinely new about Russian doctrine now is that it includes options for limited and flexible nuclear use. So during the Cold War, Soviet leaders broadly dismissed the notion of a limited nuclear war, basically scoffing at the idea that nuclear weapons could be used in small numbers to signal resolve. So there are several reasons to consider Russia's aggressive nuclear doctrine at least partially credible. So the first is that certain Russian weapons can target specific non-nuclear members of NATO. For example, the Iskander short-range ballistic missile can strike Poland or Germany from Kaliningrad or even from Belarus, but it cannot hit the UK or France, much less the US. So this is useful for conducting limited strikes, basically ensuring that nuclear-armed members of NATO will not misinterpret a Russian launch as an attack on their own homelands. And then the second factor is the increased accuracy of Russian missiles. So historically, destroying Hadin's targets required the use of high-yield warheads at altitudes that caused significant fallout. This made it difficult to selectively target military facilities for an attack because the fallout would likely kill many civilians and trigger a full-scale nuclear exchange. Today's more accurate missiles, for example, the Iskander, is accurate to a radius of just over 30 feet, can be used to destroy military targets such as hardened command posts with low-yield warheads at relatively high altitudes. So all of this lowers the fallout risk from a nuclear strike to negligible levels, making limited nuclear use as a means of coercion appear less outlandish. Some experts have questioned the value of nuclear weapons as a battlefield asset, concluding that their lack of utility was a vital lesson of the Cold War. U.S. Army studies concluded, for example, that a one kiloton warhead would need to detonate within 300 feet of a tank to inflict severe damage. Other analysts, including some Soviet analysts, concluded that tanks provide adequate protection against radiation. So even if tactical nuclear weapons have limited value against tanks, they are much more effective against artillery, infantry, and soft-skinned logistical vehicles. Moreover, long-range, non-strategic nuclear weapons could be used against air bases and command posts across Europe without the escalatory effect of large-scale civilian casualties. And there are certain potential theaters where low-yield nuclear weapons could be used with minimal civilian casualties and maximum military effect. So, Russia's nuclear doctrine therefore has important implications for NATO's strategy. If an opponent feels that military ends can be achieved with nuclear means, it might become necessary for NATO itself to integrate nuclear deterrent into modern-day war fighting. A nuclear-centric Russian military would also significantly affect NATO's force structure. 
For instance, the growing utility of light infantry and artillery against tanks is effectively inverted in a nuclear context where tanks are one of the few assets that can survive a tactical nuclear weapon. If Russia's armed forces devolve into a nuclear-centric force, as several indicators seem to promise, the West will have to rethink the future of war. Chapter 2. A Profound Threat Iran and Russia are forging tighter ties as their international isolation drives the two staunch American foes toward more trade and military cooperation. In July, Iran became the world's largest buyer of Russian wheat. In August, Russia launched an Iranian satellite into space, which is a rare success for Iran's space program. Also in August, Iran's military hosted joint drone exercises with Russian forces as the U.S. warned that Russia was preparing to receive Iranian drones for use in the ongoing war in Ukraine. So this flurry of activity shows how the Ukraine war has accelerated efforts to bring together Russia and Iran, which have often talked of closer ties but with few results. The two states share an opposition to a U.S.-led world order, and both of them suffer from tough U.S. sanctions. But until this year, their relations had been weighed down by opposing agendas in Syria, Iran's historic suspicion of foreign interference, and Russia's historic role as the dominant power in Central Asia and the Caucasus. A closer Russia-Iran alliance would help both countries mitigate the impact of Western sanctions by finding new markets for their products and boosting military cooperation that could help Russia's war in Ukraine and Iran's regional activities in the Middle East. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan recently called the burgeoning Russia-Iran ties a, quote, profound threat. The growing ties were punctuated by Russian President Vladimir Putin when he visited Tehran in July, which is basically his second foreign trip since he ordered the invasion of Ukraine on February 24. In addition, Iran's President Ibrahim Raisi had traveled to Moscow back in January when the two countries pledged more economic and military cooperation. This year, bilateral trade between Russia and Iran is up by 10%. In 2021, trade between the two countries surged 80% higher to $4 billion. Some observers say that, apart from food and military cooperation, the relationship still has a long way to go. According to China's customs statistics, China traded $14.8 billion worth of non-oil goods and services with Iran last year, and the two countries have a 25-year $400 billion trade agreement. China is also a major consumer of Russian oil that is being shunned in much of the Western world. According to Iranian businessmen, 
Russians have recently been flocking to the Islamic Republic to discuss ways to circumvent sanctions. The Russian language is often heard in Tehran's shops and hotels these days as Iran remains open to Russian travelers who have been cut off from much of the West. At the city's Grand Bazaar, that's in Tehran, Iran, local businessmen have said that the number of Russian customers has doubled since February and now make up half of its customer base. In the lobby of a luxury hotel in Tehran, the only Europeans were Russians who brought their laptops for a business meeting with Iranians in black suits. So deals on the table include Iran selling clothing to Russian buyers to replace Western brands and also automotive spare parts to embattled Russian car makers. There have also been discussions of an export corridor running from Russia to India through Iran and setting up a banking system that is totally insulated from US sanctions. Iran's state-run National Iranian Oil Company has also signed a deal with Russia's energy giant Gazprom to invest $40 billion in Iran's natural gas industry. So both countries need trade partners badly, even if they are limited in their ability to help each other. The International Monetary Fund, IMF, forecasts that the Russian gross domestic product will contract by 6% this year. The IMF expects Iran's GDP, gross domestic product, to grow by 3% this year, but the country is struggling with 50% inflation and a currency that hit a record low against the US dollar this year. So Iran offers Russia expertise in avoiding Western sanctions. At the same time, Russia appears to have given Iran preference for agricultural exports amid fears of global food shortages. Among the most important signs of warming economic ties is the fact that Iran surpassed Egypt and Turkey as Russia's largest wheat buyer in July of this year, scooping up twice as much as those two countries, Egypt and Turkey, with deliveries of about 360,000 metric tons, and that's according to data intelligence company Kepler. Trade experts say that Iran and Russia have struggled to find banks to handle their commodities transactions. As a result, their blossoming trade is a marriage of convenience at a time when European traders shun new contracts in Russian grain and other commodities. So Iran, on its part, can only buy wheat from a limited number of sources. Moreover, Russia was targeted by sanctions when the war started in February and then faced payment issues. So Iran was one of the few countries who was ready to accept such political and economic risk. And then, of course, the increased military cooperation between Iran and Russia has also alarmed U.S. officials. So Iran's hardline Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, IRGC, hosted a competition of military unmanned aerial vehicles, also known as UAVs, with the Russian army at the airbase in Kashan, south of Tehran. 
Iranians TV showed IRGC members flying Russian flags as they led a parade of Russian soldiers. The White House alleged that Iran hosted a Russian delegation in Kazan in June to showcase its attack drones. In addition, the White House said Iran was training Russian soldiers to potentially use those weapons in the ongoing war in Ukraine. Iranian drone technologies have emerged as a critical instrument of asymmetrical attacks that the Islamic Republic conducts against Saudi oil fields and other attacks by its allies in the Gaza Strip, Iraq, and Yemen. Iran has repeatedly denied plans to assist Russia's war in Ukraine. Back in August, Brigadier General Ali Balhali, who is a top IRGC Air Force officer, said that the drone drills with Russian forces were aimed at fighting global terrorism. The military UAV competition, which also involves Russian allies Armenia and Belarus, was first launched in 2015, but is typically hosted in the former Soviet Union rather than in Iran. On August 9, Russia launched an Iranian satellite from a facility it controls in Kazakhstan. Iran said the satellite would help bolster management and planning capacities in agriculture, water resources, disaster management, and border monitoring. However, the U.S. suspects that Iran could use the satellite to help Russia monitor Ukrainian troop movements. Chapter 3. One of the world's most prolific purveyors of drone technology. So on August 30, reports revealed that Iran had shipped its first plane loads of combat drones to Russia, part of a deepening plan between the two countries for Russia to use the weapons against Ukrainian forces. So Biden administration officials in the U.S. said Russian cargo planes flew at least two kinds of Iranian drones to Russia that the U.S. expects Russia to use in Ukraine to carry out missile strikes, surveillance, and electronic warfare. Of course, the U.S. had all along expected Iran to deliver hundreds of drones to Russia as President Putin tries to counter the flow of military support that the U.S. and its allies are sending to Ukraine. Ukrainian forces recently launched several counter-offensives to reclaim territory in southern Ukraine that Russia seized early in the war. The delivery underscored how Iran has emerged as one of the world's most prolific purveyors of drone technology, which has helped its allies in Yemen, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. It also highlights how unmanned weapons are partially driving the battlefield in Ukraine. Turkish-made drones have become the subject of folk songs in Ukraine after they repeatedly demonstrated their strategic importance in the country's defense. So far, however, U.S. officials said Russia's new military supplies from Iran are proving to be unreliable. In addition, U.S. officials say that the drones have experienced several failures, even though they declined to provide more details. 
The growing military cooperation between Russia and Iran comes as the US and its European allies are trying to complete a new nuclear containment deal with Iran. White House officials said that the US and Iran are close to an agreement, but that the two countries still have disagreements that could prevent them from signing a new deal. While the Biden administration hopes to resurrect the 2015 deal, Israel and its Gulf neighbors are concerned that a new agreement would allow Iran to expand its military operations, including its extensive drone development efforts. Israeli officials have launched a public campaign to derail a new agreement. They are calling on President Biden to reject the latest offers from Iran. Israeli officials have long argued that any new deal should include broader restrictions on Iran's military as well as Iran's support for militant forces across the Middle East. So far, Iran has shipped two kinds of drones to Russia. The Moheya 6, which can carry four precision-guided missiles, and the Shahed series, which can also carry missiles and stay in the air for longer periods. Back in July, the Biden administration first raised alarms about the Iran-Russia military partnership when the White House released surveillance photographs that showed Russian officials visiting a drone base in Iran. Chapter 4. Blatton Deception Russia's war against Ukraine seems to have taken a modest turn in Ukraine's favor. One sign is President Putin's new threats and his scramble for arms from his client states. Russia expected its February blitzkrieg to end in a quick victory, but the conflict has bogged down and Ukraine is now pressing an offensive in the south aimed at busting up Russian logistics and taking back territory. As a result, Russia has had to spend down its munition stores. Moreover, it's having difficulty replenishing smart weapons, mainly because of the West embargo on selling computer chips and other components that go into modern weapons. Hence, the Kremlin's overtures toward Iran and North Korea. U.S. intelligence officials whispered to the press on September 5 about North Korea's help for Russia to relieve, quote, severe supply shortages. This follows reports also in September that the mullahs of Iran, basically the religious leaders, were planning to supply drones to Russia. Countries claiming great power status typically provide client states with weapons and not the other way around. And you can also measure Mr. Putin's anxiety by his threats on September 7 to further curtail Russian energy exports and renege on his deal to let Ukraine export grain through the Black Sea. Russia had recently cut off the natural gas flow to Europe through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, and Mr. Putin threatened to extend the cutoff and add oil and refined products. He wants to increase the political pressure on European leaders going into the cold winter months. But any such cutoff would also hurt Russia's revenue to fund the war. As for grain, 
Mr. Putin struck the deal to allow Ukrainian exports this summer, lest Russia be blamed for farming around the world. On September 7, he accused the West of blatant deception in somehow taking advantage of the deal at the expense of providing food to the developing world. But Mr. Putin knows the food market is global and one of the goals of the export deal was to lower food prices by increasing supply. That helps consumers in developing countries as well. So if Mr. Putin does block Ukraine's grain exports, he will be responsible for the ensuing suffering. The US could also warn Mr. Putin that if he does block Ukraine's grain, a coalition of the willing would consider naval escorts for Ukrainian grain ships. A similar plan worked to escort oil from the Persian Gulf in the 1980s against threats from Iran. However, with his military struggling with manpower and supplies, Mr. Putin can't be eager to challenge Western ships that are engaged in a peaceful escort mission. Of course, the Ukraine war is far from over, and Mr. Putin may escalate his brutality and extortion, but Russia's sound and fury show that Ukraine's resistance and foreign support are making a difference. Continuing the supply of advanced weaponry to Ukraine is, is crucial to stopping Mr. Putin's designs there and on the frontline nations of NATO if he isn't stopped. Ukraine is under pressure, but of course, so is Russia. So to wrap up this episode, I mentioned earlier that this is part two of a four-part series where I'll be doing a wide range of geopolitical analysis on topics surrounding Russia's ongoing war effort in Ukraine and the marriage of convenience between Russia and Iran, which is a calculated attempt by the Iranian regime to solve its own domestic, social, and economic problems. Stay tuned for part three. Thanks for listening. Beat Picture Podcast is produced by Sunshine Media in association with Alowinly Productions. Fact-checking by Zara Kuznetsova. Audio engineer, Sergey Gorski. Graphic design, Stacey Graham. Senior producer, Bidemi Ologunde. Executive producers, Olufolani Ologunde and Toby Loba Ologunde. Please join me again on the next episode as I continue with a deep dive on cybersecurity's news, events, and incidents, and the lessons we can learn from them for robust cyber threat intelligence and awareness in our daily lives. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the Beat Picture Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Pandora, TuneIn Radio, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Also, please share the show with anyone that you think might benefit from it. For questions, comments, or any suggestions, please send an email to bdme at thebeatpicture.com. You can also get in touch on Twitter at BeatPicture, on the Clubhouse app at Beat, as well as on the Wisdom app at BDME. Please remember to leave a review for the podcast if your platform allows you to do so. Thank you for your time. See you on the next episode. Bye for now.